0: On today's episode, we ask the question What does it really mean to be human? This is The Runner 2049. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Two, Please. I'm your host, Slabim. And I'm your co-host, Rohit. Or am I? We never know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a great start the episode. Yeah. Well, uh... This episode has been coming for a long time. It's the Blade Runner 2049 episode. The episode uh, around, in my opinion, one of the best sequels ever made. So I've been determined to keep this episode uh, about
1: 2049. Um, but like I was telling him, it's impossible to really divorce this movie from the original uh, 1982 movie as well. Because it's essentially a continuation of the plot. It's set in the same universe. So... We're going to try and speak a little more about 2049, but it's going to be impossible for us to not have callbacks to the universe, not have callbacks to the plotline of the original.
0: Yeah, I don't think it would be possible for us to exclusively talk about 2049 without actually talking about the roots of the film, right? Which is the first Blade Runner. And uh, 1982's Blade Runner starring Harrison Ford, Sean Young, directed by Ridley Scott, based on a Philip K. Dick 1968 book, Called "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep," was a commercial flop back in the '80s. Um, There have been several stories as to why what happened to Uh, it, which I'm going to get into the BTS section of the podcast. There's one movie which essentially destroyed everyone that year, for sure, right? And uh, but went on to become a film that influenced so many properties from a cultural perspective. Absolutely. Um, this, Absolutely. Mo- this movie's influence is everywhere and almost like, uh, it, it, you could almost look back at the film's journey or like the film's journey through the years and compare it to how, what happened to 2049. Because 2049 itself was also another big commercial failure, but a critical success. And uh, in my opinion, is one of the best movies to have come out in the last 10 years. It is my personal Absolutely. favorite film in the last 10 years.
1: Uh, in fact, I remember when when 20, 2049 was coming out, <laughs> a lot of the uh, chatter was around, hey, the original flop. Because, you know, people didn't really, the average theatre-going audience uh, could not really relate as much to it. It was a little complicated. Themes were highbrow and whatnot. Has the audience become more intelligent in the intervening years? Do you think 2049 will suffer the same curse or are our audiences better informed now
0: and will be able to appreciate the movie? But nope. <laughs> did not happen now, I, don't, uh, I don't even blame the audience's intelligence for the um, failure of 2049, so 2049 is directed by Denis Villeneuve who has gone on to who has directed several other films such as Sicario Arrival, Prisoners um, On Sunday and more recently uh, the Dune series so this man is known, notoriously known for his pacing, his movies are slow and they are, yet they are thought provoking and you have to have a real palette for, uh, for his films. And Blade Runner, the first one itself, was slightly an incoherent mess. I have seen it twice now. Uh, first being the, the director's cut and then being the final cut. And both times I have found myself struggling to keep up with the pacing of the film. Uh, so I understand the audience's uh, issues with 2049. I watched this movie in the theater with like 25 people uh, on a Saturday night. And by the end of it, there were only five of us sitting in the movie theater. Everyone else had walked out because they were expecting this dystopian, fast-paced action film. And if you know the director and if you know the series, this is not what <laughs> this movie is about.
1: Which goes back to my point about dumb audiences. <laughs> but yeah, I get your point. <laughs> I, know, I know what you're saying. But uh, before we get into our first impressions, let's officially call it, yes, first First impressions.
0: So, so let's go chronologically. So uh, Blade Runner 1982, my first impressions of the film was I have to see this movie again because yeah. there, a lot of it went over my head. I saw it as a 22-year-old and yeah, I didn't young. understand. Yeah, I was way too young and I watched it again as a 26-year-old and again I was um, fully confused as to what was happening. This was <laughs> just after i watched uh, 2049 i feel like 2049 has set the board for me a lot more uh than, so i could go back to the first film and then it made it a lot more accessible <laughs> what is benjamin button way of watching <laughs> the movie? Yeah, Dude, trust me it was like i yeah, for me I, I this has happened several times i've benjamin button my way through harry potter i read Azkaban first and have had no clue what was happening then went back to book 2 and 1 and then went to 4
1: so that's, that's a that's an interesting way to have uh gone through or experienced the harry potter series uh, no comment i know further comment there <laughs> but my first impressions were very similar to yours i did not enjoy the uh, the movie the first time i watched it i'm talking about the 1982 original in fact if i remember correctly i fell asleep i was also like i think teens or early 20s when i watched it then when i was a little older a little more cynical a li- uh, i i like to think i had a little more depth of thought uh, i could appreciate it for its themes right because uh I think around the time when you hit your quarter-life crisis is when you... At least for me, it was a cue for me to start thinking about mortality. Not mortality per se, but like, hey, what are we here for? What are we, right? Ontological thoughts of what makes our presence or what defines us? Is it it our presence or whatever, you know, stuff like that. When When you're starting to find yourself in that mind space, the movie resonates with you a lot more because... That is, in essence, uh, I mean, we're going to discuss this in in a lot more depth when you come to the theme section. But that that is, in essence, uh, at the heart of the movie, right? This question of what constitutes humanity. So, I enjoyed it as I got older, as I could realize. And I think I I remember reading this comment somewhere on Reddit a long time back. But uh, that comment said, when you start growing older... And you start realizing certain things that you had dreamt of as you were a kid, when you were, as you were younger. And as you start growing older, you start giving up on these dreams as and when they become more and more unrealistic, right? And then mm-hmm. you start to come to terms with the fact that the life you wanted or dreamt of and the, uh, the life you are living, for better or worse order, to varying degrees, that life is a shell of what you wanted. It's a very depressing thought. But hmm. that thought leading into what constitutes a human life. Uh, I think that or that perspective only comes with age. And that's why I think you need to watch this a little older. It's not meant for somebody in their teens or who haven't had enough life experience. But having watched it the second time and, you know, having enjoyed it, I was like super on board the hype train for 2049. Because I love Sicario. I love Arrival. and I was like, I'm a proper Villano fanboy. So... I was like, Denny Villeneuve is doing Blade Runner sequel. Like, I can only get so erect, please, right? So, <laughs> and like you said, it's one of the best movies of the decade. 100% lived up to the hype. I would go on to say certain aspects of the movie even are better than the original. You know, it, it sort of, I'm wrestling with myself to say it, but it took the theme of the original and built on it in the most
0: organic possible way
1: that's that's how i would put it
0: do you want to hear my hot take but it's better than the i think original. i think it's better than the original i think i don't helps. think yeah yeah mm. i don't think it's I a think it's, very hot take yeah i i honestly like this is one of my favorite theatrical experiences i watched this movie like i mentioned on a saturday night i have not been immersed in a world like this i i don't remember the last time this happened i watched dune and i was kind of disappointed by dune and everybody else seemed to have the experience with Dune that I had a, with this movie. Mm-hmm. It, it's a slow burn, hard boiled detective meets cyber, uh, cyberpunk dystopian future narrative. And it's told so well and it presents such wonderful questions. In fact, I am of the opinion that I love the kind of movies where you leave a movie theater asking questions because of the ambiguity of certain um, plot points in the film. Yes, within it can reason. be frustrating. Within reason. <laughs> yeah, with within reason, exactly. Yeah. At some points you can it can be very frustrating. But in this movie, I felt like you had been served enough of a meal with room to give put your own food into the mix, like your own choices right at the end. Because this movie does something very interesting. It presents a full-blown narrative, a story about this one character who goes on this journey, this incredible journey, yet leaves several unopen open ended questions for you along the way for you to come back home sit on read up digest and have conversations about and those are my favorite kind of films this this movie came out what close to a decade ago and it's still on top of my mind I think about it every couple of months and as a matter of fact when I watched the movie in preparation for this episode I watched it in parts because I really wanted to sit in and immerse myself in in the film for what the 25-25 minutes I was watching it uh, every day just before going to bed it's such a well done film and Roger Deakins it was a criminal that act that this man was not given an Oscar before uh, this film this is the set design on this film is gorgeous okay I'm going to stop talking because uh, I will go into full fanboy mode and that's not what I should be doing yes I really like this film (laughs) (laughs) in summation it's like
1: in summation it's a good film (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But what, what's the story of the movie? We should get into a quick plot summary, I think. Uh, yeah. An interwoven so, part
0: one and part two plot summary. Cool. Let's, let's start with the first film. The 1982 version tells the story of Rick Deckard, an ex-Blade Runner, who was hired to take down a, a group of replicants who have gone rogue. These replicants are on their way to meet their, their creator, that is Eldon Tyrell, the owner of the Tyrell Corporation, who manufactures these replicants. And um, they are looking to extend uh, their lives. So every replicant in this era of, uh, of this world has a max lifespan of four years. So it's up to Rick Deckard to stop the replicants before they get to Tyrell and end up saving the day of, of sorts. Now, uh, in 2049, it takes place about 30 years after the events of the first film. It tells the story of Kay, a Nexus 9 uh, replicant, who is assigned the task of tracking down and retiring rogue replicants. Uh, On one such mission, uh, things take a surreal twist when he he stumbles upon a shocking revelation. Replicants previously believed incapable of biological reproduction may have finally been able to just do that. During his investigation, Kay unravels the cryptic history of Rachel, who was the assistant to uh, Eldon Tyrell back in the original film, who was designed for a very specific purpose. And it turns out that she and Rick Deckard had a baby together when they escaped at the end of the film. Kay becomes increasingly convinced that he may be the child born of a replicant, a discovery that sends ripples through his identity and purpose. Complicating matters further is Kay's unique relationship with Joy, a holographic AI girlfriend who accompanies him on his journey and longs for a more tangible existence. As Kay delves deeper into the mystery of replicant reproduction, he becomes the target of Love, a formidable replicant and personal assistant to Neander Wallace, the CEO of the Wallace Corporation. Love is relentless in her pursuit, which puts not only his- Kay's life in jeopardy, but also the safety of Deckard, who possesses critical information about replicant secrets. Kay's race against time to uncover the truth, evade Love's deadly pursuit, and reconcile his own identity forms the gripping narrative. Of this film, so, I
1: mean, uh, the one thing that really struck me, I just realized replicants have a lifespan of four years. Like, fuck, yeah. Even dogs must be like, bro, that's, that's a tough deal, man.
0: But they, ch- they changed that. I think uh, the idea was the replicants were not allowed to have a lifespan beyond four years because yeah. they didn't want them becoming sentient. Um, but by the time we get to 2049, uh, Neander Wallace mentions that he's finally found a way to hardwire obedience into the replicants. So he doesn't. So they can live for how as long as he wants them to. It's just there's there's so much.
1: I don't know moral dilemma to chew into, like even the last three sentences you said. I'm like you could dissect each of those sentences for half an hour each, right? It's like yeah, crazy how how dense the movie is with this this moral discussion. But uh, yeah, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that. But before we do that. Uh, any stories from behind the scenes, production, making? Uh, I have a few about the original. Let me just put those out and then uh, anything we have about 2014. I think broadly, let's try and do the whole chronological thing across. Right? Yeah, so for the original, I was just reading up a little and I saw that Philip K. Tick got the idea for the book, do Andro- or the story, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Firstly, good call on dropping that and, you know, just sticking to Blade Runner for the movie. Because if... If 100 people went and watched Blade Runner, I think 10 people would have watched do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. But anyway, mm. uh, Philip K. Dick got the idea for the story from uh, so when he was researching his 1962 novel, The Man in the High Castle. Uh, the Man in the High Castle is essentially set in an alternate universe where the Axis powers, which is your Japan and Germany, win the Second World War and how the world is in that scenario, right? So he was doing some research and he came across diaries of Polish SS officials and their entries, were, which he found intolerably cruel, but what he found unnerving was how no, how much they had normalized this, right? So apparently there was one specific line uh, which said, "We were up all night because of the we were kept up all night by the cries of starving children," and he was like, "These people cannot be human. They're, they're you know they're they're imitations of uh, humans, but they're robotic and you know they're meant to perform specific functions." That's where he got the idea, the germination of Blade Runner came from there, and I mean, I'm just the reason I wanted to put this out was Man in the High Castle is another PKD work that I really like. I didn't know that the two of them were related in this sense, right? So uh, that's where Blade Runner comes from, um, which is one thing I found really interesting. Uh, the other thing, and I think this, the other, this bit of info is a lot more common knowledge uh, today, I would say is that the whole tears and rain speech was effectively improvised by Rutger Howard, Not on set, but the night before the shoot uh, in his hotel room, apparently, he went through what was originally the dialogue for that scene and had a lot of technical jargon. And I mean, even the final product has names of places like Tannhauser Gate and all of that. But Mm -hmm. uh, there were a lot more of these in the original speech and Rutger was like, this, nobody's going to relate to this, right? And this is the end of the movie. We have to... The punch has to land here. So he got rid of a lot of the fluff and just added that one line of, you know, uh, all of this will go away, like like tears and rain, time to die. Apparently, when he uttered that line on set, people on the... Like, the crew started crying and applauding and all, so least Scott was like, okay, I know I've been boomed. <laughs> this guy has mm-hmm. taken what we've written and just, you know, elevated it. So... Probably the, you know, the most memorable moment of the first uh, movie. Coincidentally, was, was improvised or, uh, you know, not on the original script. Two other points. Uh, one was that the camp test, which is there in both movies. Uh, yeah. And it it is a, a test that you, that replicants have to take. Sorry, humans have to take to show whether they're replicants or not. Right. Yeah. Uh, whether they are AI or not. So, coincidentally, the Voidkampf test comes from an Alan Turing research paper. And this research paper was part of the imitation game that he had built uh, to test on AI, right? So, yeah. the Voidkampf test is not something that was dreamt up. It came from a very real scientific paper that was meant for this exact purpose. So, again, something I found very fascinating that they drew from uh, real life and not, you know, didn't just conjure it out of the blue. Last point was uh, about the 1982 original, like I was mentioning, both this and the other film in that year, which went on to become super influential in the genre, but was completely blown away was The Thing. Both the Blade Runner uh, both Blade Runner and The Thing were completely destroyed by this little movie called E.T. Uh, in 1982. <laughs> uh, there was all the rage and, you know, everyone was talking about it and, here I have a hot take that yes, E.T. is a great movie, but both The Thing and Blade Runner are far more influential, not only to their genres, but cinema at large than ET is. I felt weird saying this, but I I just feel Spielberg is like deified a little too much. Generally, it's I like mean, you know, it's like blasphemy
0: to say anything anti-Spielberg. Fuck Spielberg, dude. <laughs> Dude, I, I will say two words. In year, <laughs> 1993 when he released Jurassic Park and Schindler's List together, like in the same year. I, for me, that is to make those two films in the same year. Yeah, I mean, I'm joking. Some kind, not fuck yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to be anti conformist. Speedbug is great and all.
1: Yeah. I, I was mm-hmm. just saying these two movies are are bigger contributors to cinematic cultural history than extraterrestrial.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know me. I'm about to fit Berserk proper if I possibly can. Of course. So, uh, Roy Batty, uh, Radka's character, partly inspired Berserk, the character of guts in Berserk. and oddly enough, in this weird turn of events, the last chapter that Kentara Miura, the author of Berserk, wrote, the last line of the page of the uh, of the manga, is a direct nod to uh, Roy Batty's speech in uh, in the at the end of Blade Runner. It Talks about moments, but disappearing into the into the um, into the air like morning dew instead of like tears and rain, which I ended up reading. And then he this was the panel he wrote. He finished, and then he passed away. And then his um, his team ended up uh, drawing and and, and and sketching it. So it is weird coincidence that that just happened. Um, second, being the amount of things this movie has influenced. I think it influenced what Akira a couple of years later um yeah. it influenced the 1990s anime Cowboy Bebop directed by Shinchira Watanabe who also directed a shot for Blade Runner 2049 the animated shot is directed by the guys um uh, oh wow um, from from Cowboy Bebop the finals I think I could this could be a stretch the final scene from uh, Blade Runner 2049 has a direct correlation to a particular scene from cowboy bebop the imagery is very similar is what i have been told because i'm still halfway through cowboy bebop it's a really interesting experience if you haven't checked it i highly recommend that you do um but yeah those are my my things on on the first film the second movie uh, a couple of things this movie bombed badly it had dollar $1 a million dollar budget and it uh, made about 250 million so it I think with the marketing and with everything, they were very in the red by the time this film uh, came out. David Bowie was supposed to play Neander Wallace, that ultimately went to Jared Leto because David Bowie was ill and ultimately passed in 2016. David Bowie wouldn't even have had to act. The whole character was written keeping in mind David Bowie's eccentricities. So, oddities was right there, Abhin. Oh, right. I should have just done that. <laughs>
1: Literally space oddities,
0: yeah. Um, But
1: speaking of oddities or eccentricities, Jared Leto had to do with Jared Leto bullshit on set here as well. Uh, For those of you who watched, you might recall that Neander Wallace has weird-looking eyes. He has like opaque uh, eye lenses. So, apparently Jared Leto on set came came on set wearing opaque lenses and he was effectively blind. So, he had to be guided around the set with an assistant. Uh, For those of you who heard that there will be blood episode we were talking about how method acting done with the head up with your head up your ass can make you look like an idiot again second case in point i think jared leto is the torchbearer of bullshit method acting nobody asks you to do this shit keep your fucking nonsense to yourself come act and fuck off (laughs) (laughs)
0: Rohit's rant is over yeah (laughs) okay moving on um a couple of things. There is a line in this film that's a direct reference to Treasure Island when Deckard meets Kay and Deckard asks him, You mightn't happen to have a piece of cheese about you. Which is, again, from Treasure Island, oh. I think, when one of, the, one of the captains first meets and meets somebody and he can't tell if he's real or not. Uh, so, this is, again, a play. Interesting. In the, yeah, this is, uh, this is another play uh, when, when Deckard ultimately ends up meeting Kay in the wasteland that is Vegas. And a book that keeps popping up in this film called The Pale Fire, uh, Vladimir Nabokov's book. I didn't even know he wrote this book until very recently. I only know Nabokov because of Lolita, uh, much like, I guess, the rest of the world.
1: You and everyone else, friend.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So so the, the story of uh, The Pale Fire is, like, is a critique of this 999-word poem. Uh, and the guy who is critiquing it is basically pointing out issues with it and and so on and so forth. And ultimately you realize that uh, the narrator, the critique is not who he says he is and he happens to be this king of the, like a deposed king of some land and he's searching for um, the actual poet's daughter which is again a direct correlation to the plot of the film. Several lines of this uh, of the book are used in the baseline test that Ryan Gosling's character K has to keep undergoing, repeatedly, uh, to prove that, uh, he repl- that he is still a that he's still not moving from um, from from his range of emotions. I think that's about it. And yeah, one one final thing, uh, one last bit of trivia: the final sequence of the of the second film mirrors the last sequence of the first film. The score for Tears and Rain plays in the background as K's character and. Roy Batty's character, having a conversation with, uh, with Deckard's character. And I think in, in 2040, it snows, right? So it is another it form of
1: precipitation, yeah. so it's very similar in that sense as well. Mm-hmm.
0: There's an argument to be made that, um, that Kay's character is very similar to that of Roy Batty's character, except that uh, Roy Batty was more of an anarchist and, and Kay is more of a conformist.
1: Mm. so an inversion of sorts like you were mentioning yes interesting Mm. cool let's quickly move on to memorable moments I know there were a lot that we had noted down we we sort of Mm. had to prune it down because uh, otherwise you know, you won't get enough time for the theme. but yeah but But, Mm. uh, right off the bat a few uh, memorable moments from the first movie that I can think of one is the first time Rachel gives the void camp test it's you know it's like the the camera is super zoomed in on her eye through the screen and you can see Descartes and her interactions. It's the first time they meet. And right off the bat, you get the energy which defines, more or less defines their relationship for the rest of the film. It's this frigid standoffishness. And uh, while on paper, or, you know, the plot tells us that through the movie, he, you know, across the movie, he breaks through her defenses. The sort of body language that's set in the scene sets the template for the film. So, very interesting scene there. The other one that I can think of is Batty, Roy Batty conf- confronting Tyrell, right? When he mm-hmm. goes up to the tower and uh, he tells Tyrell, I need more time, I need more years, father. So again, very powerful scene. And uh, again, one of the pivotal scenes to drive home the key theme of the movie, right? Which is the more life you have, the more human you become, right? You you need more time to really establish your humanity, Again, this scene really drives that home. The other scene uh, is Deckard killing Pris, played by da- mm-hmm. Daryl Hannah. I mean, that's the one with the acrobatics, right? So, yeah. And acrobatics, and once he uh, shoots her, she starts, she's you know convulsing violently for a long time, which uh, I mean, was referenced somewhere else as well, uh, as well right?
0: Yeah, it was referenced in, in Kill Bill. So Kill Bill... Uh... Uh, Ali Driver, right, is her character's name. Mm. Uh, She plays the the one eyed assassin and in her death scene where Umar Thurman's character pulls her eye out, she rides on the floor and Quentin Tarantino apparently said it was a homage to her character Pris in the original Blade Runner film.
1: Yeah. That and uh, the other memorable moment, again, something we've spoken I think five times by now is the final confrontation between Deckard and Royce. I'm not going to get into that We've, we've sort of already dissected that but uh, these are yeah. you know the scenes that stuck with me from the original uh, what about 2049 what really stuck with you uh
0: the opening sequence for sure so the opening sequence was planned for the first film but Ridney scott went against uh, using it in the in the film and he was decided to use the noodle sequence instead so that made its way into the second film where um where essentially k is hunting down a rogue replicant and the protein farm sequence especially the way it's lit because mm. as Sapper Morton who is harvesting these maggots in the farm walks into the room and it's lit and the entire room is dark with just like light coming in and you see Ryan Gosling's case sitting uh, on, onto the left side of the, fr- of the frame right? And it's so it, there's immediate tension it's so Just well remembering
1: done. that smile uh, the remembering that scene brings a smile to my face. Just the lighting of the scene. Deacon. It's so oh, well done. <laughs>
0: yeah it, it's so well done, and especially what happens in that scene. Because when yeah. Kay discovers the bones beneath the tree, the second and this I think was possibly the most unnerved I've been. People keep saying this this scene is sensual and sexual. I was just creeped the fuck out by it. It it's the scene where Joy and Kay uh, meet on the rooftop. So Kay goes home, and he uh, has this AI wife called Joy, who is the who's a representation of the quintessential 50s American housewife. She's she's all like doting. She's like, oh, hi, how was your day? Um, it, it's some weather. You know, like, you know the mannerisms I'm talking about. And he gives her a, an emitter and asks her to come up to the roof because she really wants to be close to him. And watching these two interact, and let it be known that up until this point, I hadn't seen a lot of Anadya mas's work. I knew that she was in Knock Knock, the Keanu Reeves movie. I knew she was in War Dogs. Where seen... we got to see a lot of Ana in general. I have not seen Knock Knock. I cannot <laughs> mm, that uh, So, and then, uh, so this is the first time I'm seeing her and she is, this is her breakout role by far. You would go on to say that probably Knives Out was like, was a film where she really got to flesh out her acting chops. But as a, star making a turn, this film she was alluring, she was uh, she was sexy and she was also weirdly unnerving that entire interaction <laughs> where they're on the roof and they're having this intimate moment, I was just in my seat just like squealing it felt weird and it felt off because I knew where we were going because that's, that's the future and yeah. you, we are in the the early stages of AI right now Dude, and can you imagine Nick Beard
1: watching the movie? They're like, Ana de Amas, AI and Lover. When is 2049
0: coming, dude? Like, why are we still 26 years away from this? Oh, that's the future. And you know it's coming and you know there's a huge market for it given uh the internet's response to certain uh, websites, right? So yeah, yeah. that that's for, for sure. the Japanese um, to do their thing. Uh then <laughs> the the wall is cooperation. I think more more of more of what reminds me of the scene, one is, of course, the, um, the vacuum sealed replicant that, that is born during this time, and which is creepy mm. as hell. And it's extremely, uh, what do you call, weird. So a lot of people mentioned that this film had a ton of nudity. I watched this in an Indian movie theater. I didn't see any nudity because the censor board absolutely chopped it to bits as you'd expect it, expect it to, right? Also, which I don't an think any
1: of this nudity is, is going to titillate you in, in any way. It's, it's all like uncomfortable nudity.
0: It's extremely uncomfortable. Having watched the the uncut version, rather the, the non-censored version recently, I can say none of the nudity is paid for any sort of titillation. Um, but the whole, the little den of Wallace, where there's a lot of wood and you need to understand that wood in this film represents how rich a person is because wood is a natural resource that is no longer available. It's an organic resource. Is, yeah. An organic resource. So it really proves that this man has a shit ton of wealth. And the scene,
1: his introduction is like that misty. setup.
0: Yeah. yeah, him. Uh, I think love, who is his, um, his assistant, that who's trying to her best to appeal to to him, as you would, like as would most people do, to, would would to their god, who they would perceive as their god, mm. like undiluted uh, undiluted devotion. That really comes across well. the The orphanage sequence is super unnerving, uh, given what happens in in that in that entire scenario. The Joy and Marriott sequence, which uh, for me is a technical marvel and the effort it, that went to went into making it, this is the the, the so-called sex scene that um, Joy initiates with, um, uh, with Kay. They had to keep Ryan Gosling perfectly still using these little uh, boxes so he wouldn't move out of his mark mm. as each character, is each actress would mimic the movements. It's a technical marvel that... Even as having watched it very recently, I can't believe it, it's so flawless. Uh, Vegas looks amazing. That that yellow tint,
1: dude, and that first show, like top view shot of just you know, desolate. I was like, my heart dropped. I was like, what is this? It's
0: and it's scary. so you know, and, and it's so topical given what happened in New York earlier this year with the uh, with the fires in Canada that. Mm. Suddenly, like, gave New York the sepia-toned uh, <laughs> fog that penetrated like the entire city. Very much living in Blade Runner 2049's s uh, era. The the conference the the meeting between uh, Deckard and uh, and Kay, which I mentioned, and mm-hmm. the treasure island reference. The fight sequence in that in the hall where Elvis Presley's uh, hologram performance keeps glitching. <laughs> it's so wonderfully shot. I think this is a scene where. Uh, Harrison Ford actually ended up punching Ryan Gosling, yeah. and that they kept that shot in the movie where where Harrison Ford realizes what he's done. Then you he's have like that, <laughs> yeah. Then you have you have Joy's death, where she's uh, w- where love crushes the emitter in front of Kay. So using only, very interesting words. I mean, so Joy's death, the android was yeah. born. Yeah, I know. It's like, and I'm doing this subconsciously. I'm not even thinking. <laughs> let's uh, yeah when especially yeah, when when love kills when love kills joy one mm. another thing uh, in in front of K uh, and at this point for a relate for some for the relationship between uh, an android and an, and an ai piece of ai i was really sold on it these two had great chemistry i really bought their relationship up until the 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 reveal about joy's true nature happens mm. a couple of scenes after that, again, was a really memorable sequence because it really establishes just how like how much uh, AI is capable of doing, right? Like
1: No, but you know, the fact that up until that point, you're like, hey, they have this really unique and special relationship and, you know, whatever, I don't want to spoil that reveal. But the more you yeah. buy into the specialness of that relationship, the more fucked up that twist is,
0: right? And and I think we it'll come. Uh, this will this scene will make a comeback when we go into themes because I really want to discuss it further in detail. But I'm just trying to like talk about the scenes that particularly stood out. Mm. And the final sequence with um with with the with the fight near the seawall is again so wonderfully shot. I can't help but think of the amount of effort it took for them to to get that thing Do done. Like the world of 2049,
1: the like visual world of 2049. Deacons has done like 1917 is great, but this is just like you know, just he's batting like like just out of otherworldly dude.
0: Deacons is just it's like a, it's a world. film that I can sit in and just observe for a couple of minutes or like even hours. It's like you could have it playing in the back and just be immersed in the in the world, the music, the sounds. Yeah, there's so much of it that's that's so good, and of course the final sequence where um where K and Deckard meet and he tells him to go meet his child and there's so much of that I will I want to unpack and but we'll do it in the themes so let's move on to themes. I think the
1: first one we, we need to get this out of the way like we've been saying repeatedly so far this this is the question at the heart of, uh, of both movies right which is what really constitutes humanity and yeah. uh, I think there are two specific aspects ...of humanity... ...that are... ...focused on... ...in each movie... ...the first movie... ...really... ...tries to drive home the point that... ...our memories are what make us human... ...our memories of our experiences... ...because a pivotal plot point of the first movie is... ...Rachel not knowing she's a replicant... ...because she's been implanted with false memories... ...which make her believe that she's had a childhood... ...and she's had parents growing up... ...and all of that... ...and therefore... Because these memories she does not know are manufactured. But for her, these are real memories. And for her, so essentially the the message here being memories make a person, make a life. Uh, Which is again, is a part of 2049. But, you know, at uh, at the top of the episode, I said there are certain aspects of the story that uh, Villano has taken and evolved organically to be even superior than the first one. Here, I think the fact that reproduction or uh, you know you are you are able to propagate your species again species is a loaded term Mm -hmm. here Uh, is something fundamental to organic living beings and for a a replicant to potentially be able to do that is another aspect of what makes us human right Uh, which is the aspect which is at the core of this movie so again i think both these movies take specific aspects of what uh, defines humanity or what cons- what allows you to ca- call yourself human and uh, really dives deep into it and again this is a question that you know you can you can deep dive into it as much as you want there's really no uh you know end to it right there's really no you're not going to hit upon an answer and there's no uh what do you say yeah we've you know we've we've solved this question there really is no
0: one definitive answer I was always looking at at least the first film. I was always looking at the movie as what ultimately ends up making us human is it empathy? Like, is it? It's not. Is it just? Is it something not as quantifiable as as a, as reproducing as as giving birth? And even in the second film, it asks the question. Like, he is so sure of his of his implanted memories. Like, he, he doesn't. He starts to question who he is as a person. In a sense, K
1: is also an inversion of Descartes because in the first movie, Descartes spends all of his time trying to prove to himself or deny the possibility that he's a uh, that he's a replicant. But in this movie, he K knows he's a replicant. He spends the entire movie trying to disprove to himself that he's a human. So in that way, it's an inversion as well.
0: I don't know if he's trying to disprove himself
1: that he's a human. I think he's trying. I I mean, not disprove. What I meant is. Hmm. Deckard is somebody who who's assured, self-assured that he's in the fact that he's a human, who's unsure whether he's a replicant. And K is self-assured in the fact so far that he's a replicant, but now unsure whether he's human. So in that way, it's an inversion. Hmm, fair enough. So the the journey of discover self discovery or whatever is is
0: exactly opposite for each other. But the first theme that I walked out with after having watched this film was. The Pinocchio story, right? Like This is very clearly mm-hmm. a, a, like a, a child going on his journey to, dis, to become a, a real boy or a real man. But ultimately, what really makes him human in the end is when, when he finally learns who he is and he learns that he's not anyone special, yet he chooses to do what he does. He has that conversation with, with Deckard at the end uh, and Deckard asks him, "Who am I to you?" And he doesn't doesn't say anything to him. He just he's like, "I think you should go meet your daughter." And that's what he ends up doing. Oh yeah, by the way, I feel like we haven't revealed this yet. So throughout the film, it's hinted that he might be the son of uh, Rachel and and Deckard, but turns out he's not. the The child of uh, Rachel and Deckard happens to be the the woman who creates the memories, uh, Anna Staline. And in the midst of creating memories for replicants, she implants some of her own memories into, uh, into Kay, which trigger when he reads the date on the tree at Sapper Morton's farm, when he finds the horse in uh, the horse statue, which is actually a unicorn because it's missing a piece on its head. It is again a throwback to the first throwback film. Throwback to the first film. Damn, Denny. Like... Coming back to the ending where he, uh, where he sits on the stairs and he... I think he comes full circle with who he is as a person. He, for him, becoming a human is somebody who has a soul, and he's extremely aware that he's he does not have a soul. He's just this apathetic creature that's been going through the motions until his worldview is challenged, and and to and to pursue that and and to go down this rabbit hole where you're so unsure of of what your next step is going to be is probably the most human thing ever because you open yourself up to being hurt like we all do on a repeated basis uh, in, in pursuit of our own curiosity. So it's I found that to be very, very interesting. But that's the, that's the thing, right? Now, if I were to look at this very
1: coldly from a very objective perspective, what good does having emotions do us, right? And therefore, if, if replicants or AI are meant to perform very specific functions what good does it have what good does it do to give someone like a k the ability to feel the ability to empathize with someone androids don't need to have that and therefore the question comes did they learn this on their own iteratively or was this programmed into them if so what are the aspects of humanity that can be that are programmable right and if everything is programmable it's like that thing right if if everyone has it nobody has it if if you can program every aspect of
0: humanity then nobody is human this this ties into uh into the existential and mort- mortality theme that we also have correct which you is know, i i, yeah. I you know, we
1: do because uh, again i feel one of the things that also defines humanity is how we treat death right because exactly. uh Uh, I mean, we can segue into that theme if you want, because I think this is as good a thing to do that. Because uh, a replicant like K would know, I have whatever X years to live on this earth. Live, again, I'm using live uh, in air quotes, but I have X years of existence and I'm going to die. And in their case, as an automaton, it's very clear. You are, your electrical circuits are firing up until a point and then they stop firing. Yeah. Whereas when it comes to humans, we have a whole, you know, um, mythology of what happens after death and we build this whole exactly. fantasy universe of things that exist after that. And death, for those who believe uh, in these things, death is not the final, it sounds very mummy-ish, the mummy, but yeah. death is death, mm-hmm. death is only the beginning, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, is, is that, are, are our beliefs what separate us from uh humanity and a lot of these beliefs are essentially coping mechanisms against existentialism, right? Because yeah. if you take a moment to think about the high highly probable reality that post-death there is nothing. I mean hmm. there's not even black, there's nothing. It's the absence exactly, of anything. Yeah. It's a very depressing thought. And it's it's like why do anything anyway if, if it's you know nothingness is what awaits us. And then we come up with these mythologies of, hey, no, there is more to it. And so is that what makes us human? I mean, I don't know. Like you said, this movie just leaves you
0: with questions. Is it like, is it the transference of consciousness? Because I think even in the the animated shot that uh, Shinichiro Watanabe directed, um, there's a line where one of the replicants asked the other replicant saying, if we die, do we go to heaven? And he says, no, only humans go to heaven. We go into nothingness. That, that's what awaits us.
1: If we die, we go to heaven?
0: No heaven or hell for
1: us. This world is all we've got. So I, And are you, uh, are you telling me this is the prevalent belief system in that world?
0: I mean, that's depressing yeah. as fuck, dude. So f- for them, I assume it is... Th- th- this is like heaven racism or something journey to attain consciousness is, is their is their uh, is their goal, right? And it happens regardless of, of the scenario. Because, and I want to draw a strong parallel to to Westworld as well. Because even Westworld, even though they are technically androids and hosts and whatnot, the whole idea, the creator, Doctor Ford's idea, was that my hosts will attain consciousness through suffering. Suffering, the pain that the world is not as you want it to be. It was when Arnold died, when I suffered, that I began to understand what he had found. Because again, you're, you're looking at um, what do you call it? you? You, you look, look at the Christ messianic figures, right? Yeah, uh, wasn't even he, when, when Jesus, yeah, when Jesus died, yeah. yeah, Jesus died. He went through suffering and then ultimately came back as the Son of God. Here, God the, for the replicants and for the hosts, their gods, their creators are humans. So, for them to attain humanity or to attain, in this case, godhood, is their journey is through uh, is through suffering. If you look at the replicants who mutiny, uh, who, who, who mutiny, right? They went through after years and years of being put through harsh, abusive conditions. I think it's time we addressed the the entire base of this film of, of the mm. of the world rather. So, this film takes place in a world where World War Three has happened, and due to chemical and nuclear warfare. The atmosphere of the Earth is screwed. As a result, uh, the governments of the world are looking at off-world, uh, con- uh, off-world planets to occupy and create colonies. And the only way to con- to do these uh, operations is to create a, a breed of android hosts called replicants who are not humans. So you bypass the slave trade um, conundrum. they send sent... Yeah, the avoided the sticky question altogether. Exactly, right? and they are all built for one single purpose and there are different generations of them so up until i think there's, there's a revolt that happens in the fourth generation if i'm if i know the lore correctly but then by the sixth the the mutiny is like it has taken six full generations for the uh for the replicants to have finally understood that hey you know what there's more to this like the the, the echoes of suffering have carried through each um, through each generation. Similarly, with Westworld, he the way the the hosts are treated on a repeated basis in the park, uh, and it's always the, the it's always the the pleasure dolls or the uh, or the prostitute hosts that ultimately end up being the first because they're the most mistreated. Even in Westworld, I think the, the prostitute is the first one to go. Uh, is the first one to attain full consciousness. And similarly in in Blade Runner, the first one, Pris, the the pleasure doll, is one of the first to attain. To, to mutiny against uh, her purpose so there's so much to um, there's so much similarity between these two worlds that ultimately all growth comes it comes it boils down to the to one point that all growth comes through suffering and uh, i think the creators are extremely care, aware of 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 that happening which is why up until wallace um there there's no attempt to hardwire them into obedience because they'll find a way to break out of their programming and the same happens with with wallace again regardless no matter how hardwired uh, his replicants are k ultimately breaks his programming and goes against what he's supposed to do
1: i think the world that is built in in blade runner also to me represents the failed promises of capitalism right because mm-hmm. and we're already sort of seeing that play out in real life in the usa as well like Income inequality, affordable housing just being a myth at this point. And uh, the whole idea, you know, I was listening to a podcast this morning on how uh, USA has become a a car society, right? It's not public transport friendly because in the early 20s when car companies lobbied heavily to make sure that infrastructure in the US was, uh, what do you say, Uh, car friendly and the seeds put in place or sown then are being reaped now because you have a phenomenon like uh, food deserts where you know people who don't have cars have to end up eating low-cost unhealthy food that is walking distance from their house because healthy food is a drive away and they can't do that right so Mm -hmm. the decision to make USA a car society I'm just playing this out to you know uh, establish how dystopians how dystopias are born out of capitalist decisions the decision to make car a u.s society food deserts are one repercussion there are so many such repercussions you know uh the kind of education that your children get the kind of health care you can afford or, or have access to simple decision has so many ripple effects and uh you can see even in this movie. Uh, the income inequality is completely off the chart, right? You have somebody like a Neander yeah. Wallace who is literally living in a forest of wood and living in or more or less a literal ivory tar, you know, he's detached from yeah. it all. While you have, and even in the first movie, you see the average person is not living in great conditions. You see the dilapidation of the building that uh, Kay lives in or even when Descartes, his apartment is, you can clearly tell these people are not, financially doing well off, income inequality is at an all-time high quality of life in general is at an all-time low and uh, you know capitalist economies or companies have figured a way out of uh, around the ethical dilemma of slavery by creating essentially what are replace. i mean the the androids or applicants mm-hmm. are slaves in all but name yeah so you can see how this movie really shows what would the what the logical uh end or logical conclusion of unfettered capitalism would be right, and you can see how capitalism promises you one thing uh but those on the inside know that you know they' never intend to they're never intending to deliver on those promises they're only looking to create wealth for themselves off of the back of the general public, and you can see all of that how it would play out, and for better or worse, I mean definitely worse, there's no better I think we are driving ourselves towards that future
0: if you notice also in the movie and how society is classified so people who live on the ground level are all are, are the poorest of the poor they don't have a lot of income and there are advertisements everywhere asking uh, people to move off planet for a better life mm. but those who can't afford it are stuck on the ground and exposed to the worst conditions much like uh people who can't afford uh, basic amenities these days they're exposed to really harsh conditions no heat no um uh, in, in the wind in the summer uh, there's there's no there's no cool air coming through there's no water let alone let alone air so and they just make to they make to they, they somehow find a way to to thrive in the dirt but as you go higher and especially in this movie and this in the world you go higher up into into this, into the atmosphere uh this, it's almost like a vertical city where the cream, the creme de la creme live right at the top and right at the bottom is when you find you find the bottom feeders, the, the replicants who, are no, who have nowhere to go. Um, the, I think by the time 2049 comes out, most replicants have been put out of commission except the pleasure mm-hmm. dolls. And the pleasure dolls are ultimately the ones that are forming uh, some sort of um, a, a rebellion because Mackenzie um, Davis' character, I think the character is called Marriott, right? Mm-hmm. When they have that that scene with um, with Joy and, and Kay, she puts a tracker on him, and that's how they're able to find him at the end of um, at the end of the Vegas sequence. Mm-hmm. So it's like you, it's a very interesting take on how people will find a way. And that, that's I think that's again coming back to the humanity point. Humanity finds a way to adapt to adjust. And it shouldn't always have to be the case. Yeah,
1: I mean, again, even discussing the movie just leaves you with more questions. You answer two questions, two more this. You
0: know, like, exactly.
1: There really is no end to it. I think that just leaves us at the last theme, which I know you wanted to get yeah. into, which is the nature of AI and the ethical dilemma the, that, that surrounds very it. Very
0: prominent theme. So the whole relationship with Joy, I think the best way to do this is to is to do it with an example. So she's the doting housewife, the one that is totally committed to him. She's the one that gives him a name. She calls him Joe, because he tells her that he may not be a replicant after all. That he may be um, the child, and, and which is why he shouldn't have the serial number that he was assigned. And she tries when when he crashes at the orphanage. She tries to pull him, break him out. Um, she wants to be with him. She arranges for like um, a prostitute to uh, to act as a proxy for for her herself. And right at the end, just before she dies, she she tells him that she loves him. And even when he, before all of that happens, as he's going to Vegas and he and he tells her that he that he can't take her with her, she refuses. She says, "No, take me with you. Uh, I, I want to be with you." And I'm I'm very confused as to how much of that is programmed AI or how much of that is AI becoming sentient, because where is the line? And that's the thing with with the with the ethics of AI right, right now, right? So um, you can let AI go free and it will go free, but how do you like like how do you contain it? Because at the end of the film, because once she dies and then he walks past the giant billboard of her where her eyes are blacked out, she's naked, she's appearing to the base common denominator. And she calls him Joe, because that's apparently, this I learned very recently, that Joes are what prostitutes call men on streets. Uh, it's, their, it's their most common go-to um, first name. Which, again, brings the brings question to him about how much of my relationship was real, and mm. how much of it was just constructed. I
1: think, I was just thinking, while you were you were mentioning all of this, it I this kind of struck me. I think her did this first. Uh, a lot of common themes there as well, you know, like, Walkmean Phoenix's character has a very similar relationship to uh, the Scarlett Johansson OS character. I, Samantha, if I remember. Yeah. And, uh, again, you feel they have a very special relationship, very unique, and then you learn that this is something that she's been having with some 700 other uh, OS's as well or whatever, right? So, again, a very similar sort of theme and story there. Uh, very Two very different movies, but this thread is is common. Uh, very common, similar yeah. in both of them. But yeah, I agree. I I don't know what the answer to that is, right? At least in the case of replicants, there is a phys- physical aspect to the similarity between them and humans. So, it's a lot more black and white uh when it comes to holographic ai what you really have is is just the mind and that that's where things become even murkier right how is an ai different from a human mind are are emotions by can emotions be broken down to binary code because that's essentially what joy is doing or or is she like will our understanding of technology technology's building blocks are binary code are we saying ai will be able to transcend this fundamental understanding altogether again there's there's really no theoretical end to this uh, thought experiment but when, when
0: when does it start to fill in the gaps is what you're trying to say so with like yeah exactly
1: hmm. i mean at this point it's not black. binary is black hmm. and white but the way yeah. joy behaves is completely grey
0: how does very, that... very much so. How does that happen? And I think it, like it even the advertisement says, right? Like, see what you want to see, hear what you want to hear. And so I guess for my theory is that, yes, I'd say about a big chunk of the relationship was manufactured, but some of it was, was sentient. Like towards the end, it got very sentient because I'd like to believe that uh, I am. Not as Are you much saying as I his would... version
1: of joy, which lives on his whatever pen drive for, that he has? Hmm. Are you saying she has her own emotions that are unique to her
0: unit? That unit? I feel that eventually happened, where it got because she went way out of her way to do things
1: for him. But which, isn't that like again, one of but, the first three laws of? Uh... Asimov's laws of robotics, if I were to draw back to saying do what helps your human the most? Mm. I can codify even that. Like if you want, there are ways to codify
0: even that behavior. But if but even then, I mean, if help if you judge that your human is about to go die, uh and they've made up, would you not do your best to convince them not to do it? And then well, that's the one's... question, right? This is
1: great. Yeah. Do irrational decisions define humanity? There are, there we always, we have, all of us have been in situations where the logical thing to do is X, but there's something which drives us to do Y, right? We take a whimsical yeah. decision, we take an illogical choice, which is like, this doesn't make sense, but I something tells me I want to do it, so I'm going to do it. Exactly, yeah. So does irrationality define humanity? Is that something that's the purview of just humans or is that something... That is AI able to
0: overcome fundamental logical programming and do irrational things. Right? So, is it you saying if once AI starts to make decisions based on emotion, it has finally achieved true humanity? Has it? I'm not saying. I'm asking. Has it? I, I don't know. Could I, this this could very well be the case? And this is why I love this film because I I don't know the answer to it. I, this is this is like a there there are some days I gravitate towards the theory that oh the whole thing was a sham that it was like I think companies understood what. Uh, the, understood the loneliness of men and basically created this AI model that would that would counteract every every feeling that they were going through, and it's happening right now. If you think about it, if you think about it, if you, the men messaging women on webcams and on OnlyFans and asking for um, uh, asking for some sort of validation, where the women say, "Oh, you're you're great, you're this, you're that," it's there's, there's an epidemic of it at, at this point in time. So I. Can truly see corporations leaning into it and, and doubling down. So, again, if you asked me on a day like what, what what my theory is on Joy. If she was, it surely did become a bit human at the end, and it could be one of two things.
1: No, I agree. I, I don't think we're going to have a satisfactory resolution to any of these teams. Uh, which is great. Yeah, yeah but is... I think we've left all of them on, uh, at great questions. Yes. So that, that, much that like uh, yeah, much like the film. That uh, brings us to the last and the most outlandish <laughs> section of uh, our pod. <laughs> uh, kudos to Abhin, he's come up with a, a, a right doozy for today. Uh, our last section is what if X were to do Y, which uh, for those of you who are new to uh, this format or those of you who haven't heard last episode, essentially what we do in this last section of the pod is uh, play out if a certain other director were to direct the movie that we're discussing. So for today's uh, version, we have... Uh, Abhin's going to take you through the synopsis and then we'll just flesh out some of the actors. We'll We'll do a bit of discussion there. But today we're going to discuss... What if Sanjay Leela Bansali <laughs> were to direct the Blade Runner movie movies? So how would that play out? Right. What's the plot like?
0: This is Blade Runner: Symphony of Souls, <laughs> <laughs> directed directed by Sanjay Leela Bansali. So in a future where replicants are integrated into society, Officer K is tasked with tracking down replicants who have deviated from their designated roles. His journey leads him to Nana, a replicant oh, of a unique ability. K to Nana. <laughs> A replicant's unique ability to compose and manipulate emotions through music. Nana's ethereal performances captivate audiences, evoking emotions that mirror what the complexities audiences? of audiences?
1: we are in a dystop- dystopia.
0: <laughs> Street audiences. As Kate <laughs> delves into Nana's enigmatic world, he discovers a powerful connection between her music and the lost art of human emotions. Lost Their parts intertwine, blurring the lines between human and replicant. Kay's pursuit of Nana brings him into contact with the influential and reclusive Master M- Maestro Ray, a genius composer who harbors a dark secret. As Kay and Nana's bond deepens, they find themselves entangled in a conspiracy that challenges the very foundations of their existence. Their journey leads them to confront the imposing Tygoon Wallace, who seeks to harness Nana's unique ability for their own gain. The film's climax crescendos into a dramatic confrontation and a breathtaking masquerade ball. Where past and future collide and the <laughs> characters' destinies <laughs> are irrevocably altered. So who are we casting as as, as the wooden? Oh dude? yeah. So who are we casting? Eh, hey, uh, yeah. Actually,
1: Ryan Gosling was fair. Oh yeah. You need peop, uh, somebody who can act robotic. Then I think uh, Salman Khan fits the bill. He can't act. For Salman shit Khan is.
0: Exactly, Salman <laughs> Khan is. <has> K. <laughs> who is Nana? Who, who's who's uh who's Nana? Naina could be Deepika Padukone, okay, because we cast her and everything, she'll figure it out. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the companion. answer, right? You can put her anywhere, yeah. that's true. It's the easiest answer. You can put Deepika Padukone in this film and she'll carry it. And it's oh, a Bansali
1: movie. Is there a joy in this film? Because isn't Naina his love interest? Dancer Nena in this dystopian dancer Nena.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, dancer Nena, then we need to cast K as uh, Ranbir Kapoor. Basically, this is Yejavani Devani in Blade Runner's universe. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm trying to think of pun names of age. Fuck it. I, I, let's, let's move mm-hmm. on. Okay. So then Ranbir Kapoor is uh, K and Deepika yes. Padukone is Nena. Oh, damn. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's, who's what? Mr. Royer?
0: Yeah, Maestro Roy, the, the the brooding figure. The he's her master. Yeah, basically, this, I assume he's like a phantom of the opera character. Is what
1: I would think. Oh, okay. So he's
0: Randeep like the Puda. replicant, but phantom. Yeah. Fair.
1: I don't know why. When I, when I, whenever my mind goes to like uh, brooding Bollywood actors, it's like Ranveer. We have if, if Ridley <laughs> Scott is looking for us. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Where are these guys?
1: I'm going to come kill them
0: both. <laughs> okay, no, you, you also said you had certain changes to make to this plot or add. What what did you have in mind? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, again, none of those things can be said on the podcast. <laughs> 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 so basically what changes is like, okay, let's talk about this film. So what really changes in this movie? You have Ranbir Kapoor as... As, so, as see, as if it's Kee a Sanjay Leela Bansali, yeah.
1: right, this is, this is yeah. not a, a nuanced take on the definition of humanity. Humans and androids it. are two f- warring feuds. They've been warring for generations, right? This yes. is like Ram Leela. So, K is representing replicants, and uh, Nena is this human dystopian dancer. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Their falling in love now means they have to overcome the prejudice that humans and replicants. Fuck! What prejudice replicants even have against humans? They own you, bitch. But anyways. But
0: okay, fine. No, whatever. <laughs> this this word replicants are prejudiced. Okay, let's let's, let's take that current yeah. hmm. And now, basically,
1: the challenge is that K and and Nana have to come up with a dance performance that is so electrifying that people have to forget their differences and like dance together. That's the and that that final dance of or the group dance happens at this masquerade ball that this movie supposedly has
0: in its <laughs> yes. climax yes and then at the end of the masquerade ball they die i keeping in true traditions of sanjheela bansali films they both have to die because yeah. sanjheela bansali loves tragedies so they die and their death ultimately leads to the the mixing of the humans and replicant societies hum sell de chuke sanam I'm trying to think of yes, that's it. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Okay, that's it. that's the movie. Ham sell duche out done. Perfect. Yeah, hmm. I don't know. If they run on batteries, um, but yeah, I think we can make it work. Humsel <laughs> <laughs> cell deuche interlink interlinked cells, so it's that's fine. Yeah, it. fair enough. Yeah, we yeah. that's the We found a stretch. Call that's us. That's the daily. movie, and that's the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the movie. That's the episode. What a way to end. We went from like such an interesting, fun conversation on the themes of this films and, and the world to um, this. I'm, I'm sorry Nobody has done an SLB version
1: of Blade Runner. For good
0: reason. Done. Yeah, okay. SLBs Blade Runner. Do, do androids dream of uh, electric gangra uh, Gungu's <laughs> anyway that's the episode that's the episode we'll see you next week